Hi there, and lovely to have you along with me, Cleon and Ianlun, for another edition of Spoken Stories. This Spoken Stories collection is called Creatures of the Earth, after the title of a story and a collection of stories by John McGahern. Each podcast edition features a new story by a writer who was invited to contribute a story that started out by a consideration of what creatures of the earth might conjure up for them, where it might take them in a new story of their own. Previously, Spoken Stories Independence had writers think about what independence could mean, how it could present itself in a new story today, a hundred years after Ireland's War of Independence. John McGahern often referred to the fact that his own parents had experienced that War of Independence at first hand, its turbulence, its repercussions, and how McGahern's generation was the first born into independent Ireland. And so in its way, Spoken Stories Creatures of the Earth is a natural expansion on its predecessor, Spoken Stories Independence. Together, these stories are a creative contribution to Ireland's decade of centenaries. They illustrate how variously ideas can be interpreted. Here now is writer Colin Walsh on his story, Night on Earth. I wrote it by first thinking a lot about the the actual phrase, creatures of the earth, which is fairly uh, evocative as a prompt. So uh, that phrase got me thinking about our creatureliness, like our pure animal being, something we can perhaps recognize more in babies and children, this fragile animality that we all share, but which often becomes invisible as we mature into these functioning social beings. I was thinking about the innocence and fragility of that pure animal being uh, that we all share, and at the point where that creaturely innocence in time tips over into something a bit more complicated, more human and therefore more morally fraught. You know, the point where innocence becomes something like naivety or willful ignorance, a sort of looking the other way. And at the same time, with this decade of centenaries, I'd also been doing a lot of historical reading about Ireland itself, not just about the War of Independence and the Civil War, but also about the Troubles and about the forging of the Republic and about the Republic's frequent failure to meet its ideals and protect all its citizens equally. And in parallel to that, I'd been reading a lot of McGahern and listening to his old interviews on shows like Rattlebag. And uh, a recurring theme in those interviews and in his fiction Uh, is the disillusionment his father felt with the sort of bourgeois complacency of the Ireland that emerged from the struggle he'd seen his comrades kill and die for. McGahern in his own way was similarly unimpressed by the complacency of the Republic, its failure to account for its people, its willingness to let so many suffer in silence in order not to rock the boat. Uh, So while I never write towards a concept or a didactic viewpoint, I do think that all those ideas of uh, innocence versus naivety or complacency versus care, of romantic ideals versus our all-too-human shortcomings, I think all those ideas were underpinning the writing of this story for reasons that might become clear when you hear it. Colin Walsh. And now, Nisha Dunbar reads Night on Earth by Colin Walsh. Leaving certain night, and we were out in the smoking area of the club. I'd just turned 18 the day before my last exam. It was like the universe was winking at me, 
saying myself and life were ready for each other. But sure, I was already racing into it full pelt, slipping through thresholds like hands through water. First time presenting the passport and getting the gruff nod off the bouncer. First time in a nightclub. First legal pints. Whole evening had been pure magic-like. I drank shots of blue aftershock at the bar with Rachel. Our friends watched from a distance as herself and myself shouted on the dance floor, cupping each other's ears. Rachel was heading to Trinity after summer. I'd be down to Cork if I got the points. We'd been making eyes at each other for months, swapping notes, testing each other's French grammar. There was something magic to the fact that if anything happened between us now, it'd only be for the summer. The gorgeous ache of something that can't last. So we're out the smoking area. The others have left us alone. Rachel's chatting about her plans for when she gets to Dublin. She's pure smart. Nothing's going to keep her back. And she looks unreal. Gorgeous, like... I'm working up the balls to say this to her when she gazes up at me through her lashes and I realise we're already past that. It's inevitable like gravity. We're about to kiss. She bites on her bottom lip. Do you fancy going somewhere else? She says. With me? So we walk through the club holding hands past the smirks and elbow jabs of our classmates. And towns like the Apocalypse. Us leaving certs have the run of the place. Lads giving each other piggybacks outside the chipper, girls in stilettos passing and nagging in a circle as they scream the words to Wonderwall back at a busker. Some young fellow with his trousers round his ankles, shuffling down the square shouting, Let's go fucking mental, let's go fucking mental, la da da da, hey! It's like being kids in a playground again, everyone in their own dream world. Only we're not kids. We're not one thing or the other. So I'm thinking Rachel and me are going to go to another club or whatever. But she's walking us towards the taxi rank. She gives this nervous smile and tells me her parents are away for the weekend. That we can go back to her house if I like. It'd just be the two of us. It was like someone had turned up the volume in the world. Everything went high definition. So I tell her I need to go to the ATM. Stall in the taxi queue there, I say. And when I make to leave, she goes, Here, Owen. What? Come here to me a minute. She takes my hand and brings it to her mouth. Her eyes look up at me as she slowly kisses each of my fingertips. This secret smile in her face. Don't be long, she says. So I'm in the queue for the ATM, brain fizzing, guts like bumblebees. Everything's whirring and I'm part of all of it. From the end of the queue I can hear the chant of the two homeless people sat on the ground by the machine. It's like a jingle. Spare your offer the homeless please. Spare your offer the homeless please. The homeless girl's speaking. She's young. Maybe even my age. Her red hair's bright under the street lamp glare. Cheekbones cut like crescents. As the queue gets shorter, I realise I'm looking at Saoirse O'Neill. 
Saoirse used to live across the road from me. She lived in the house Dad called the Revolving Door. Different people lived there every year. I used to think it must be haunted, otherwise why would people keep leaving? But Saoirse's family didn't seem haunted. Their laughter folded itself around you like a hug. Her parents had this warm, higgledy-piggledy feel. Tea stains and loose threads on the sofa. Front door wide open, morning to night. Mam didn't like that. This tight fixed to her mouth whenever she peered out the window, shaking her head at Saoirse's lawn. Folk like that, Dad muttered. They never settle for long. I was eleven that summer and Saoirse was twelve, so I was always playing catch-up, falling short of her cool. Saoirse never called me Owen. She was the first person to call me by my surname. Every time I'd drop into her house she'd go, How's Duggan today? And ruffle my hair like I was her dog. Sometimes she'd grind on my skull with her knuckles, Nuggie for Dougie! The feeling of her touch used to jangle through my spine for hours. I'd replay it in my head at night, giving myself belly floods. We used to spy on teenagers kissing in the laneway behind our house. Lovebirds, is what Saoirse called them. Every time a pair of lovebirds were about to get going, their mouths sinking into a kiss, Saoirse would start these moaning sex noises. I'd giggle whisper at her to stop, my guts churning with nerves, but Saoirse only got a kick out of me squirming. She liked to stand on the coast road outside the estate and wave frantically at all the cars driving by, just because she knew it made me anxious. I had visions of her distracting a driver causing a ten-car pile-up. Whenever someone waved back or blew their horn at us, Saoirse would bark a triumphant laugh at me and ruffle my hair filling my spine with all her tingles. She was wide to the world. The queue for the ATM is getting shorter. I'm getting closer. I can see the few coins glinting on the grey beanie hat at Saoirse's feet. Spare Yora for the homeless, please. Spare Yora for the homeless, please. The man next to Saoirse looks exhausted. His head's tipped back, eyes closed. Every now and then Saoirse whispers something to him and he smirks. I used to watch her do this with her brother Carl whenever we watched films in our sitting room. Carl was way older than us. Twenty. Used to do magic tricks, make coins disappear, that kind of thing. He was home most of the time because he wasn't well. Sometimes we'd stick on a movie and he'd fall asleep in his armchair, chin slowly sinking to his chest. Or he'd talk and his words got all confused and he'd shake his head like sleep was pushing down on his skull and he was fighting it off. I asked Saoirse about this and it was the first time I saw her get angry. I realised I was supposed to act like this wasn't happening to Carl, like nothing was wrong with him. Any moment in a film that was a bit cheesy, herself and Carl would just slaughter it. Fake, they'd shout. Fake. 
but this was just a mask Saoirse put on to impress her brother. I realised this when we went to the cinema together, just the two of us. Titanic. It was my first time going to the cinema without parents. Both of us were buzzing. But the girl at the ticket desk wouldn't sell us the tickets because I was 11 and Titanic was a 12s. I was ready to retreat. But Saoirse didn't even hesitate. Give us two tickets for speed too, so, she said. Then we went through the turnstile and Saoirse hooked my arm and marched us straight into Titanic. Her leg brushed against mine as the lights went down. Speed two, she snorted. Give us a bloody break. The first time Jack and Rose kissed, they're at the nose of the ship, barreling through the Atlantic wind rushing in their hair. Rose has her arms out. Jack, I'm flying. I knew if we'd been at home watching the film with Carl, Saoirse's nose would have already been wrinkled. She'd be sticking her finger in her mouth pretending to gag. But here, in the anonymous dark of the cinema, her sceptical eyebrows had disappeared. Her face glowed with hope. Seeing her like that gave me a hurt feeling inside, like something in there was being cut open, letting more life in. She leaned her head on my shoulder for the rest of the film after that. I remember getting a cramp because I didn't want to move. Do you think I look like Rose? She said as we walked home. Yeah, I said. You're such a liar, she said, this faraway smile in her eyes. After Titanic, a special quiet started happening between us. I could feel it in the spaces between what we'd say. Saoirse seemed different. Distracted, like. When we watched films together, it was just us. Her brother Carl was never there anymore. He was always in his room, door locked. And sometimes Saoirse would put an arm over my shoulders and just let it hang there for the whole film. Then one night I was sleeping over at Saoirse's and she suggested we sneak down to the beach to look at all the waves. She said she'd done it before. Said we should drink something from her parents' cabinet first to keep warm. I'd heard that people mixed their drinks with coke to make them taste better. But when we poured coke into a glass of Bailey's it made a lumpy purple sludge. I'm not drinking that, Saoirse said. So we opened a bottle of Jemison. I took a big slug of it to show I was cool. It was the worst. Pure mank. I retched. Hot acid bubbling in my chest. Then this warmth hit my stomach and spread across my arms and that felt class. We both took sips, holding our breath so we wouldn't have to taste it. We passed the bottle back and forth, our mouths meeting on the shine of the rim. You know why Rose loves Jack? She said. I said it was because he looks like Leonardo DiCaprio. I was trying to be cool and sarcastic, like Carl. Saoirse looked cross. Uh, no. It's because everyone else treats her like a child. Her family's always lying, but Jack knows she's cool. He'd never hurt her. He always tells her the truth. I nodded along, but inside I was wishing we were just a bit younger. Then we could have played Titanic like a game. I'd have stood behind Saoirse and put my hands around her waist while she opened her arms. I'm flying. 
When we sneaked outside, I felt no fear, only warm giddiness. Saoirse had a torch and its light bounced off everything in the estate. We were like Jack and Rose, sneaking around the basement of the ship. On the coast road, I waved at passing taxis the way Saoirse usually did. I wasn't nervous about it either. One taxi beeped back at me and Saoirse let out a frightened bark of a laugh and ruffled my hair, spreading her tingles all over my skull, down my back. I'd never felt as cool. We went down the dark road to White Strand. The trees were like a cathedral over us. The air was salty, a smell like dog. I was nervous about what had happened once we reached the shore. I knew the real Titanic was out there under all them dark waves. And I knew that, if this was a movie, this'd be where we'd kiss. We'd reached the shore with the wind chattering about our hair when Saoirse grabbed my arm. Look! There was a single car parked in the darkness, pointing out at the ocean. Any other time and I'd have been scared and retreated. But I was with Saoirse and I'd seen Titanic. I knew what people got up to in the back of parked cars. This was my chance to show I could be fearless and funny. Just like Carl. I bet you it's lovebirds, I whispered. We should go up and shine the torch on them. You could make your sex noises. I expected Saoirse to grin at this idea, but she didn't. Her face was tight. You go, she said. I grabbed her torch and began to approach the car. Something about the car was familiar but I couldn't place it in the dark. I crouched down, heart thudding, and crept forward till I was right next to the driver's seat. I glanced back at Saoirse. Her silhouette stood in the distance. She waved. The blood was pumping in my ears. I took a deep breath. I stood up too quickly. Instant head rush. I was dizzy and the sex noises were already filling my throat when I clicked on the torch and shone the light into the car. The driver's seat was lowered back. It wasn't lovebirds. The guy in the seat looked like he was sleeping. One hand suspended, claw-like above him, the other arm by his side. There was a strap around his arm, a needle dangling in the muscle. His lips were parted, but his eyes were closed. I knew his face. It was Saoirse's brother, Carl. I ran back to Saoirse. What did you see? She said. Her eyes were busy searching my face. Nothing. I said. What do you mean, nothing? There's no one in there, I said. She stared. Are you lying to me? She said. What? I said, no. In the moonlight, her face changed. Something left it. I could feel my skin burning pure hot like. I was glad it was dark. I didn't call over to her house for a couple of days after that. I don't know why. Maybe that's not true.
but the next time I called to her door she said she couldn't hang out, she was busy. A few minutes later I looked across the estate at her house and saw she was just watching TV by herself. After this, I decided to wait for her to call to my door instead. Saoirse started secondary school two weeks later. She got a different bus home from school and always had loads of homework and wore new clothes. I thought this would be a temporary thing, but once I saw real teenagers calling to her house, I realised things wouldn't come back. We were living at different speeds. I heard things about her getting into fights at her school. There was one night the guards were parked outside her house. I never found out what for. My parents stood watching at the front window. The next summer we went to Disneyland and when we came back a Polish couple had moved into Saoirse's house. By then me and Saoirse didn't know each other anymore, not really. I still thought of her whenever I saw anything to do with Titanic. Kate Winslet popped up in a magazine. Saoirse would flicker past my eyes. Her face, like. But nothing more than that. So I'm looking at my feet, pure awkward, when the person in front of me steps to the ATM. Saoirse hasn't spotted me yet, but I turn back to look at the queue for the taxis anyway. Rachel's still there, hugging her arms against the breeze. She waves at me. I wave at her. But when I turn towards the machine, Saoirse's eyes are looking straight up into mine. This movement happens behind them, like the shutter of a camera. Then she stares blankly. Hurry up, would you? A voice calls from behind me. Machine's free. I step to the ATM and put in my card. Saoirse looks up at me and I shield my pin code with my hand. I still don't know if I did this out of habit or what. But I remember Saoirse snorted and looked away. Spare euro for the homeless, please. I took out thirty euro. The blood was thrumming in me. I stepped away from the machine and looked down at her. She was staring past my legs. Any change? The guy next to her said. I knew I needed to say some vital, true thing. But when I opened my mouth, there were no words in there. Saoirse was staring at my shoes, but her face darkened once I fumbled in my pocket and the guy took my coins. I knew straight away I'd fucked up. So I held out the 30 euro as well. Owen! A voice sing-songed. It was Rachel. She was standing by a taxi about to get in. I looked down at Saoirse, but she was glaring past me. Bye-bye, Owen, she said. That took ages, Rachel said as I got in the taxi. Rachel gave the driver her address. The car took off and she slid across the seat next to me. She gazed up at me. Her eyes were swimming. Get what you wanted, she said. I didn't even have the cash anymore. But Rachel put a hand to the back of my neck and I closed my eyes. She tasted like Alcopops. Her mouth was soft on mine, gentle at first, then hungry. Her tongue pushing against mine. I felt her smile on my mouth and the car was bombing a town whirring past us. 
We were rushing through the turns of the world, kissing and kissing and kissing. Lights flashing over my eyelids. I tried to sink into the moment. Then Rachel put her hands in my hair and her fingers combed up my scalp like lightning jangling my spine and I was suddenly filled with tingles. The taxi seemed to get faster, barreling us forward. I opened my eyes, like that had slowed things down. Rachel's eyebrows were stitched tight with pleasure. Her mouth sank to my neck and the night blitz past the taxi window over her shoulder. It was like looking at a movie screen. But it wasn't a movie. It was just a coast road. For a moment I saw how myself and Saoirse must have looked out there, standing on the curb waving at all the taxis. I thought of how much I would have wanted to be that guy in the car, kissing and getting kissed. I thought of how Saoirse would have laughed at the sight of those people, passing by. There you heard Nisha Dunbar read Night on Earth by Colin Walsh. Next time on Spoken Stories, My Love, My Lake, My Forest by Eilish Nuhivne and read by Aidan Kelly. And you can enjoy all the commissioned fiction of Spoken Stories as they are broadcast on RTE Radio 1, on rte.ie forward slash culture or wherever you get your podcasts. From me, Cleon and Ianloon, thank you for listening.